Welcome to A Reason for Hope. My name is Adrian, and I'm in studio here from Tucson, Arizona, Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson, with our senior pastor, Scott Richards. Hey, everybody. How you doing, sir? Doing great. Great to be back. Good to see you. Yeah, good to yeah. be here. <laughs> well, this is A Reason for Hope. This is a weekday Bible Answer program where you, our audience, ask us questions about the Bible, the Christian worldview, comparative religions, or whatever it is that uh, you'd like to know as far as it comes to the Christian faith, how to apply a specific passage to your life, or how to perhaps uh, interpret or different views on different doctrinal issues. Whatever it may be, <clears throat> we're here as a resource for you, uh, uh, our senior teaching staff <laughs> spent countless years and hours <clears throat> studying God's Word in hopes to give the rest of the world the hope that we have in Christ. So I'd encourage you to jump on with us and uh, take advantage of our um, uh, weekday Bible Answer program. So you can chime in in multiple ways. You can join us as we live stream to Facebook and uh, the information for that is right up on the screen there. If you're listening on the radio and you want to ask a question uh, on our live stream audience, just go to facebook.com, search for Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson, or you can just go to facebook.com forward slash CCF Tucson. You can also uh, catch us on YouTube. We simultaneously live stream to both those platforms, and that's youtube.com. Just search for a reason for hope. You'll find us there. It's usually that uh, red dove or the red icon with the white dove, I should say. And you can find us there. If you're listening in on the radio, just go to youtube.com forward slash at a reason for hope 546. And of course, if you want to avoid social media platforms, but you still want to ask questions, maybe you don't have a Facebook account or you don't want to have a Google account to uh, be able to comment on YouTube, you can just go straight to our website. That's calvarychristianfellowship.com. And once you are there, uh, just hit that little... Uh, watch live tab and you can uh, not only watch the program as well as all of our uh, live stream services we live stream our Wednesday night oasis service where we are currently going verse by verse through the book of Ezekiel or our Sunday morning services we live stream all of our services on Sunday morning so you can uh, <clears throat> catch us there as well 8 o'clock a.m. Mountain Standard Time 9:30 and 11 and we are currently going through the book of Acts. So if you want to engage with us, there's a little nifty prayer button. So if you want to make a prayer request, you can take advantage of that, as well as ask questions on this program. So I'd encourage you to do that. And of course, um, we do uh, <clears throat> catalog our broadcast on Rumble. So if you want to catch past episodes, and again, don't want to go to YouTube or Facebook, you can go to Rumble and do it that way. Uh, we also have an app, so if you are part of our community, uh, you can download the app from the Apple or Google Play Store. And on this app, you can not only catch all our live streams, archived past sermons, there's a nifty digital Bible where you can leave notes, highlight texts, choose different translations as you follow along our Bible teachings. You can also uh, know what's going on in our calendar for events and so many more things you can do with the app. So I'd encourage you to download that if you haven't yet. And last but not least, if you want to ask a question on this program, again, we do this Monday through Friday, 5 to 6 p.m. Mountain Standard Time. You can simply email us if you'd prefer to be a little more discreet and ask maybe a personal question, again, relating to the Christian faith. You can do so by emailing us at questionsforhope at gmail.com. That's questions for hope at gmail.com all letters no numbers and uh, also if you want to follow our senior pastor on X formerly called Twitter you can do so by going to that platform and uh, 
looking for our pastor's handle, which is at Scott R4H. Very entertaining and informative news feed. And of course, if you want to ask a question on this program, you can tweet it if you prefer. I don't know if they still call it tweeting, but um, I can't think of a better term. So. Yeah. yeah. Xing? That doesn't sound yeah. right to me. Yeah. I, yeah. I'm going to cross out That's what I want to say. negative to me for yeah. some reason. I'm going to X you right yeah. now. Right. <laughs> yeah. All my X's live in Texas, I think, was a song. So, oh. yeah, yeah. But anyway. I digress. <laughs> <laughs> well, before we do our prophecy update for today, uh, happy Monday to all of you listening in live. Uh, thank you for joining us. We're going to take a moment to pray and ask the Lord to just be with us and uh, give us the right words to speak because it's not about us. It's really about um, God's work in your life. So we're hoping to be uh, vessels for that. So let's pray and uh, get started. Yeah. Father, thank you for this wonderful opportunity to be able to explore your word together. I pray your spirit will rest upon Adrian and myself. As, uh, as we take the questions that come on in, as we uh, look into uh, the, the questions, not just the, the presenting issues, but the, the real issues of the heart these questions represent. We pray, Lord, that your word would be taught in its fullness uh, with a, an awe and a respect for this priceless gift you've given to us. Uh, Lord, we pray that uh, your wisdom uh, would be implanted in the hearts of those listening. Maybe even those who don't know you in any kind of personal way uh, would come to know you today as a result. Uh, they would receive your wonderful love and the forgiveness that you paid such a price for when you died on the cross. Jesus rose from the dead uh, to uh, pay the price for all of our sins so that we could be born again. I pray that that experience would be uh, conveyed by you to many, many people as this broadcast unfolds today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you for that. So do we have a prophecy update that you can clue us in on? Well, a uh, pretty big day on the Jewish calendar. It's already started in Israel because of uh, the time differential here. But uh, today is Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, uh, as it were. Uh, for those of you not uh, aware of uh, Yom Kippur and what it involves with, there's two passages in the Old Testament that describe what uh, this Day of Atonement is, uh, Leviticus chapter 23 and uh, Leviticus chapter 16, uh, the entire chapter, are uh, the two uh, passages that you'd look at if uh, you're looking for uh, a, an overview of what uh, this ceremony is all about. Now, uh, Yom Kippur is really an interesting uh, time in Israel, not just uh, because of the biblical description there, but uh, the, the way that it has come to have been celebrated uh, down through time. Uh, it is the culmination of what are called the Ten Days of Awe that begin with uh, Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year, uh, and Yom Teruah, the uh, Day of Trumpets, uh, all the way to Yom Kippur. In fact, uh, Jews all over the world have a very interesting greeting. They extend to one another. Uh, they are, in essence, saying this in English, may you have a good inscription and sealing in the book of life. Uh, according to the rabbis, this is the day where God decides who's going to live and who's going to die uh, the next year. Uh, on Yom Kippur itself, uh, Jews don't wish each other, by the way, a happy day of atonement because the day of atonement is supposed to be an incredible time of uh, introspection, a time of solemnness, a time of awareness of personal sin and failure, a uh, hunger and a thirst and a desire 
for God to forgive and uh, to cleanse people from their sins. Hence the idea of the Day of Atonement. In fact, on this day, uh, Jews will uh, greet each other in Hebrew saying, Gemar Katima Tova, which literally means have a good final sealing for one more year. Well, as you can imagine, uh, all uh, Orthodox and ultra-Orthodox Jews take this time of uh, fasting and uh, repentance and seeking God's forgiveness incredibly seriously. Uh, in fact, uh, we are told in Leviticus chapter 23 and verse 26, the Lord said to Moses, the tenth day of the seventh month is the day of atonement. Hold a sacred assembly and deny yourselves and present a food offering to the Lord. Do not do any work on that day because it is a day of atonement. When atonement is made for you before the Lord your God, therefore do not deny, uh, those who do not deny themselves on that day must be cut off from the people. I will destroy them uh, from among their people. Anyone who does any work on that day, you shall do no work at all. This is to be a lasting ordinance for the generations to come wherever you live. It is the day of Sabbath rest for you and you must deny yourselves from the evening of the ninth day of the month until the following evening you are to observe your Sabbath. Well, you know, again, uh, part of the rituals that would be involved in the Day of Atonement, and this is especially uh, described in Leviticus chapter 16, was uh, not only on that day would the Jewish high priest, and only on that day, enter into the Holy of Holies. He would offer uh, a blood atonement on the Ark of the Covenant, on the mercy seat, for the sins that were committed in ignorance during the year. There were obviously other sin offerings that people could uh, come to the temple and offer to the Lord if they were aware of a particular area of sin within their life. But what about the ones that slipped through the cracks? Or what about the ones uh, that people weren't aware of? Uh, you know, for, inst for instance, in Psalm 19, uh, King David prayed, uh, forgive who can discern his errors? Forgive your servant of hidden faults. Keep me back from presumptuous sins as well. May they not rule over me. Then I shall be blameless, acquitted of great transgression. Well, this idea of hidden faults is really what the Day of Atonement was all about. Aaron, the priest in Leviticus chapter 16, was to put on special garments, a sacrifice of a bowl or a sin offering for his family, and the blood of that bowl was to be sprinkled on the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, Aaron was then, uh, very interestingly, to bring two goats, one to be sacrificed because of the uncleanness and rebellion of the Israelites, whatever their sins may have been, the blood was then sprinkled on the Ark of the Covenant. The other goat, interestingly enough, was used as a scapegoat. Aaron would place his hands on its head, confess over the rebellion and wickedness of the Israelites, and send the goat out with an appointed man who would release it into the wilderness. This was a picture of the goat carrying on itself all the sins of the people which were forgiven for another year. Well, you know, this uh, sacrifice that would take place here uh, definitely had some uh, New Testament implications. In, in fact, in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 1, we are told, For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very image of the things that can never, with these same sacrifices, which they offer continually year by year, make those who approach perfect. Now, this idea of offering year by year is not just all of the sacrifices that would happen in a year, but it definitely is focusing in on the sacrifices that would take place on the Day of Atonement. The writer of Hebrews says, For then would they not have ceased to be offered, for the worshipers once purified would have no more consciousness of sins. 
But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. Or it is not possible for the blood of bulls and goats, once again, to take away sin, focusing in on this day of atonement. Therefore, when he came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you've prepared for me. And burnt offerings and sacrifices for sins you had no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come, and the volume of the book it is written of me, to do your will, O God. Previously saying, Sacrifice and offering, burnt offerings and offerings for sin, you did not desire, nor had pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, referring to Jesus. He takes away the first that he might establish the second. By that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. And every priest who stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices can never take away sins. But this man, after he'd offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God, from that time waiting till all of his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are sanctified. But as the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us, for after this he said before, this is the covenant I will make with them in those days, says the Lord. I will put my law into their hearts and in their minds I will write them. Then he adds, their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now, where there is no remission of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. So what the writer of Hebrews is saying is, is that the day of atonement, this day where you had a uh, one-size-fits-all, uh, to whom it may concern, uh, offering of sin on the Holy of Holies. And then this picture of the two goats, one being sacrificed, a picture of death, the other being a picture of sins being removed. And we see uh, references to this, images of this in passages like Psalm 103, where it says, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Well, no matter how far you took that goat out in the wilderness, he could only go a finite distance. But again, in Psalm 103, we see that there was going to be a greater sacrifice for sins, a greater atonement, if you will, for sins that Jesus accomplished. You know, for instance, the last words that Jesus spoke on the cross were, were the Greek word to telestai. It literally means it is finished or it is complete, not to be uh, continued. So by that one offering, we are told, sins have been forgiven and forgotten. They don't have to be atoned for over and over and over again. How fascinating that within 40 years of Jesus' death on the cross, the temple itself was destroyed and temple sacrifice came to an end. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I think it's uh, tragic, though, that there are uh, believers in Christ who believe somehow that uh, Jesus has to be sacrificed over and over again. Sometimes they will liken this to the uh, observation of communion and believe in a doctrine called transubstantiation. That's a mouthful that says that the elements of communion, the bread becomes the actual body of Christ, the uh, cup becomes his actual blood, and in that he is sacrificed over and over and over again. Well, the book of Hebrews says there's no need for that. Uh, we do uh, communion in order to remember what Jesus has done for this. That's what Jesus commanded his disciples. He said, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, do it in remembrance of me, not to nail Jesus on the cross again, not to put him back up there, as some churches will even have an image of Jesus mm -hmm. still on the cross, 
Jesus suffered once for all to take away our sins. And so the Day of Atonement has that, uh, that overview. Uh, it's a fascinating, uh, you know, that uh, we're talking about uh, the Day of Atonement and this idea that, uh, that sins would be taken away. Our good friend Joel Rosenberg has a fascinating article on uh, the implications of the Day of Atonement. He, the headline says this in All Israel News, this Yom Kippur, one million Jews worldwide believe atonement comes only from Messiah Jesus, and only he can write their names in the Book of Life. Mm. And, uh, you know, again, uh, Joel has a fascinating article there. I would encourage you to go to All Israel News and uh, read it where he talks about the implications of all this. But one of the most fascinating things in this article that we see is uh, the incredible spiritual awakening that is happening uh, among the Jewish people. Uh, in fact, as we said, one million Jews worldwide uh, profess that Yeshua is their Messiah, that his death on the cross was the atonement for their sin. That's one out of roughly 17 to 18 Jewish people professing faith in Jesus. I'm not mm. sure how the uh, percentages break down, but you know, for instance, in the United States, we have uh, 50 million some professing evangelical Bible-believing Christians you know, out of a population of uh, nearly 30, 300 million. Uh, so, you know, again, the percentages there are pretty fascinating. There is a very significant amount of Jewish people that put their faith in Jesus. And, and uh, Joel gives some background on this that will really show you how, uh, you know, we've talked about uh, the Jesus Revolution, the Jesus Revolution movie, uh, talking about the Jesus movement, Calvary Chapel being an instrumental part of this. Uh, we're, we're part of that fellowship of churches. But there's another Jesus movement that Joel illustrates in this article. I'd like to just share some of these statistics with you because I think you'll find them very encouraging. He says, in the early part of the 20th century, the number of Jewish people in Europe who professed to be followers of Jesus as Messiah surged to 230,000. Again, tragically, most of these believers were killed during World War II, the Holocaust, and subsequent <clears throat> Soviet cruelty. By the 50s, there were only a few thousand Jewish believers in Yeshua left. Uh, but uh, then the Six-Day War in 1967 happened, including the miraculous reunification of Jerusalem. And that marked a very interesting turning point, not just because the Jews retook both East and West Jerusalem during that time, but something else across the sea was happening, the Jesus movement, the Jesus revolution. Tens of millions of secular, maybe even pagan individuals, spiritually confused Americans, began, began coming to faith in Jesus. They experienced what we call being born again, being given a brand new life spiritually by putting their faith and trust in Jesus. Uh, they began to read their Bibles and they began to share their faith. In fact, the phenomena was so profound that Time Magazine uh, published a cover story called calling this movement the Jesus Revolution. Here's a quote from it. Jesus is alive and well and living in the radical spiritual fervor of a growing number of young Americans who proclaimed an extraordinary religious revolution in his name. Their message, the Bible is true, miracles happen. God really did so love the world that he gave his only begotten son. 
If any one mark clearly identifies them, it is their total belief in the awesome supernatural Jesus Christ, not just a marvelous man who lived 2,000 years ago, but a living God who is both Savior and Judge and ruler of their destinies. Well, at that time, a fascinating thing began to happen. Not only did we see a revival here in the United States, and you know, I trace my spiritual roots back to the implications of that revival. That's how I got saved uh, during that time. But a half century later, now, Joel notes, there are approximately one million Jews in the world today who now profess Jesus as their Messiah. The largest number of Jewish believers in Jesus at any time since Jesus was born in Bethlehem are now walking this earth. Uh, again, the vast majority of these believers uh, are in the United States. A study by LifeWay, the research branch of the Southern Baptist Convention, found that there were 187,000 uh, Jewish Americans who hold the same beliefs as evangelical Christians. Uh, again, uh, the uh, study went on to note that uh, the original number of uh, Jewish uh, believers in the state of Israel in 1948 who professed faith in Jesus uh, was 23 in 1948. Wow. Now in Israel, in Israel itself, there are over 30,000 who profess mm-hmm. faith in Jesus as the Messiah. And the other thing that is fascinating that Joel points out is that Jewish interest in the gospel is growing by leaps and bounds. Joel has participated along with uh, the uh, Israel College of the Bible and a number of individuals by providing online short form videos Hmm. of Jewish individuals who have professed faith in Jesus and how they came to know them, including Joel's testimony. Uh, They average about five to seven minutes. Uh, These videos have now been seen over 40 million times. And they're in Hebrew, by the way. Wow. So, you know, when we see... Uh, and we do update you all uh, on, say, the pushback that we see among the Orthodox, the ultra-Orthodox, the opposition of the ultra-Orthodox to, say, granting visas to Christians to come to Israel. Uh, you know, one of the reasons that you're seeing this pushback is the same reason that you're seeing, uh, you know, a, a real outrage in Muslim countries uh, regarding the amount of Muslims that are coming to faith in Jesus as the Messiah. Uh, you know, the, uh, the rise of terrorism in uh, these days, although it's been part and parcel of Islam for a long time, one of the reasons that there is such uh, vehement opposition to the West is not just because of, uh, you know, the, uh, the loose lifestyle that the West represents and so on, but because so many Muslims are coming to faith in mm-hmm. Christ now. There's, there's a lot of worry, and that same worry uh, we see in Israel today. So, uh, you know, once again, uh, these videos are, are making a tremendous impact. No one is forcing people to search. No one is forcing people to believe in Jesus. But these ministries that are targeting Jewish people, particularly in Israel, are making a tremendous, tremendous impact. So, you know, again, what are we seeing? What are the implications of all of this? Well, what I believe we're seeing is the first fruits, if you will, of a, a, a massive movement, a massive mm-hmm. turning to faith in Jesus that the Bible says will take place after the rapture of the church and in the tribulation period. 
In fact, uh, the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 11 at verse 26 says that during this time, all Israel will be saved. I mean, like en masse, uh, it will be a, a incredibly difficult time for the Jewish people. The Antichrist will make them his number one target. He will have a Holocaust program himself. will make Hitler's Holocaust look like a walk in the park. The book of Zechariah predicts two-thirds of the Jewish people will be wiped out during that particular time. But, you know, where sin increased, grace did increase all the more. Mm. So, you know, when we see movies like the Jesus Revolution and we hear testimonies of people, Gentiles like you and me, Adrian, coming to faith in Christ in our country, what we fail to realize is that statistically another Jesus Revolution is happening and it's Mm. happening among the Jewish people. It's happening in Israel even as we speak. And, um, you know, there are those who will say uh, and point to uh, Matthew chapter 24, where Jesus uh, offered the parable of the fig tree. Mm-hmm. When the fig tree first puts out its, its, uh, its blossoms and begins, well, you know, summer is near. Even so, you know, my return is near, even at the doors. Mm-hmm. Uh, some people have uh, tried to say uh, that that is a, a way of date setting. I don't believe it's date setting. But uh, the fig tree, interestingly enough, has always been a national symbol of Israel. Just like mm-hmm. the eagle is the United States' national symbol, uh, the national symbol of Israel is not the Star of David. It's the fig tree. Mm. And uh, Jesus said, when you see the fig tree beginning to blossom, you know that uh, the return of Jesus is drawing near. Mm. Will it be this generation? Well, we can't say for sure. Jesus said no one would know the day or the hour. But the fact that Israel is physically back in the land again, that the land of Israel has been restored from an arid place, uh, an unarable ground, uh, you couldn't grow anything on it, it was only broken up by malarial swamps. And then uh, the Zionist movement came in, uh, began to reclaim this land that had just been run roughshod by all the conquerors that had rolled through it. Literally desolate. (laughs) Yeah, it was very desolate. Now, you know, one of the the beautiful, beautiful moments Mm. that I've had on my trips to Israel is when uh, you go to Mount Carmel, where Elijah fought the prophets Mm. uh, of uh, Baal spiritually there, that that amazing contest of who's going to answer the sacrifice by fire. You know, people will focus in on that. But on Mount Carmel, you can look out and you can look down on the Jezreel Valley from there and have a tremendous, tremendous view of that area. And it is such a beautiful and, uh, and green and verdant area, you know, devoted to, to agriculture. When you look at that Jezreel Valley, you also realize something else. There's another name for it because right in the middle of the Jezreel Valley is one feature called Har Megeddon or mm. the Mount of Megiddo, the place where the Battle of Armageddon is going to take place mm. in the last days. So you see all of these prophecies beginning to come together. And uh, one of the prophecies that I think is neglected, uh, along with the return of Israel to their national homeland, is this turning of the Jewish people, this hunger and thirst for their mm. Messiah that God is planting within their hearts <clears throat> and is impacting the nation of Israel even as we speak. And it's going to be, I mean, we won't know, I I grant we won't know for sure, but uh, when these new believers vanish, their fellow Israelites are going to be, uh, no wonder there's going to be a huge, uh, huge growth of of believers in Christ uh, during the last days, during the tribulation period, because 
you know, it's one thing to have uh, 50 million Americans vanish in the rapture, but to have a couple million uh, Jewish, and especially in Israel, just vanish, yeah. uh, it's going to cause quite a stir. Yeah. Probably, yeah. Uh, yeah. <clears throat> wow. Well, you know, we live in very interesting mm. times, for sure. And uh, it's just exciting to see these things begin to happen. So Now, is that generally the meaning of when you see the fig tree, you know it's spring? Is it really correlating to uh, Jewish people coming to faith? Well, I, I think that's certainly part of it. Um, you know, Jesus was more broad in Matthew 24. He says, when you see these things begin to happen, you know, look up for your salvation draws near, the parallel passage mm -hmm. in the book of Luke chapter 17. Uh, you know, I think when we see these events coming together, uh, you know, there's a danger sometimes of people going all chicken little, thinking that every development in Israel is thoroughly and amazingly prophetically significant. Uh, some will react to, say, the over-the-top and outrageous and unproven claims like the blood moon stuff and all of this. And they'll say, oh, you know, it's just, uh, you know, prophecy's kind of the... There was a priest the, that mentioned the... The, 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 the world the weekly <laughs> news of, of, of Bible study and so on. Mm -hmm. But I think that's really throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Mm -hmm. You know, we have more data uh, looking at world events around us now to base our hope that we are the generation that will see the return of Jesus than any other generation, mm. really, since the destruction of the temple. Yep. Uh, so Israel back in the land, huge sign. Uh, massive turning uh, as far as a percentage of Jewish people to faith in Jesus. The response that Joel talked about to these short form videos, the intense curiosity that Jewish people have about the message of Jesus being the promised Messiah. Even the opposition that we see growing from ultra-Orthodox groups in Israel opposing the message of uh, Jesus as the Messiah. Mm -hmm. You know, you, we start to see these, these pictures coming together and uh, these pieces of the prophetic puzzle happening. And uh, again, uh, to uh, reference back to our good friend Joel, uh, when we see all this happening, he's got a great line that he always, uh, he goes, if you're, you're uh, thinking about uh, committing some major sin in your life, in light of everything that's going on in this world and all the, the prophetic pieces coming together, I definitely put it off <laughs> because Jesus could come at any moment. Well, speaking of uh, how we should live, uh, Mike wanted to know, what does it mean when Jesus said, take up your cross? Uh, what is our cross? Uh, Mike wants to know. Thanks, Mike, for the for listening to the program today, and uh, thanks for the question. Yeah, I think that's that's a, a, a really great question, Mike. And uh, when we see this famous statement, you know, you know, most people will almost utter it like a cliche. Jesus saying, you know, take up your cross and follow me. Uh, sometimes I think it can be misinterpreted. Uh, sometimes in our culture we have a phrase, well, I guess that's my cross to bear. Uh, you know, something difficult in your life, some, uh, something uncomfortable, something irritating in your life. We, we tend to think about that. Other people would define taking up your cross as a laundry list of spiritual to-do lists and to-don'ts that you have to engage in if you're going to be a believer 
in Jesus. But when we take a look at where Jesus made this statement and what was going on in his ministry at this time, a very different picture emerges in all of this, and it's really a beautiful one. You remember in Matthew chapter 16, uh, Jesus is uh, asking his disciples a uh, really important question. Uh, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And their response, uh, finally, I'm sure they were excited that Jesus asked them a question they could answer because, you know, they were around listening to the crowds. They were the ones doing the, uh, I guess, the uh, focus groups, if you will, hearing what people were saying about who Jesus was. And they'll say, well, some say you're John the Baptist, come back from the dead. Some say Elijah or others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Uh, And uh, Jesus answered and said, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who's in heaven. Also, I say to you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Now, just a word of clarification on that. Uh, Jesus calls Peter Petros. That's the masculine form of that. Uh, literally, it means like a, a small stone or a pebble. Uh, but then he said, and on this rock, he uses another form of this term, petros, which literally means a massive stone. And where he said this was really fascinating because he said it in Caesarea Philippi. Mm. Now, if you go with us uh, on our tour of Israel in 2025, one of the places I love to go is Caesarea Philippi and the the whole region to the north of Galilee up there uh, towards Tel Dan and other sites like this is incredibly lush and incredibly beautiful, incredibly well watered. This stream that literally flows, its headwaters go all the way up into Lebanon, into Mount Hermon, flows down through this, this area. And as you go to Caesarea Philippi, you see this massive stone uh, edifice that is there, this natural rock formation. It looks like uh, kind of a junior model of El Capitan in uh, Yosemite, if you know what that looks like. And there's this stream that flows, uh, flows through there. And, and so when Jesus said to Peter, you know, you're Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, he's almost, you could almost see him pointing up to this massive stone. Well, what was the rock he was referring mm-hmm. to? Peter's confession that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Uh, did God use Simon Peter in a powerful way? Wrote two books of the Old Test, uh, the New Testament, for sure. A uh, guy who gave the sermon at Pentecost, absolutely. First guy to lead a Gentile, the Roman centurion Cornelius, mm-hmm. to Christ. But it's interesting that after that time, Peter almost passes from the scene as far as mm-hmm. prominence in the book of Acts. In fact, in uh, Acts 15 that we're going to get into this coming Sunday, we're going to see that uh, when uh, the church is trying to figure out, okay, do Gentiles have to first convert to Judaism and be circumcised in order to receive the Jewish Messiah? It wasn't Peter's testimony that carried it. It wasn't even Paul and Barnabas's testimony. It was James, the half-brother of Jesus, who said, this is what the Scripture says, this is what we need to do, and everybody listened to James. So, you know, the idea that Peter had prominence about this, the misinterpretation of all this. So he says, upon this rock... I'll build my church. And the gates of Hades, literally the gates of hell, will not prevail against it. You know what I love about that? Uh, When you go to Caesarea Philippi, uh, you see that Herod had built a temple 
to the god Pan uh, there at Caesarea Philippi. And the temple of the god Pan, this altar there, and you see Pan. Pan looks like the spitting image of the devil, by the way. Uh, you know, we get our term panic from that. Pan was considered uh, the god of fear. And this river that would run down there ran into a cave that was right there beyond the temple of Pan. And people called that, believe it or not, the gates of Hades, the gates of hmm. hell. Uh, and so Jesus is pointing these things out. And, uh, you know, again, it was a deep, dark cavern and the river ran into it. And uh, the, when you would offer a sacrifice to Pan, uh, if the sacrifice floated, it meant that Pan hadn't received your sacrifice and something horrible was going to happen to you. If the sacrifice sunk, it meant that Pan received your sacrifice. So very satanically oriented there. And so what Jesus is saying is, this is the essence of fear-based Satanism that you're seeing right here. Gates of hell are not going to prevail against it. I, I digress a little bit, but it's very, very important for us to understand that. He said, I give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he commanded his disciples they should tell no one that he was the Christ. Now, why would he do that? Well, because as we're going to see, Peter didn't really understand what was involved here. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and raised the third day. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. Then he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. Now remember, this is the context of seeing this temple of Pan and all the satanic over, overtones and you know, the gates of hell are not going to prevail. He says, Get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Now, this is key to understanding what Jesus is going to say next. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it for a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For when the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, then he will reward each according to his works. Now, this whole idea of taking up your cross and following me, what was the overview? What was Jesus getting at there? Now, notice he says, if anyone comes after me first, let him deny himself. Now, we've probably all heard sermons where pastors are more than happy to fill in the blank after the word himself. Let him deny himself the indulgences of the flesh. Let him deny himself worldly entertainment. Let him deny himself, you know, the list goes on depending on what the person's pet sin might be. So, you know, when Jesus says, let him deny himself, he's not saying deny yourself goodies or activities or stimulating your nerve endings. What he's saying is the same thing he was saying to Peter. Don't try to tell me my business. Mm. Don't think that I need your advice. God has a plan for my life. He has a purpose. The purpose of my life is to go to the cross and, and die for the sins of the world. A commitment to God that I'm willing to make wholeheartedly. Mm. Jesus set his face, we are told, to go to Jerusalem. Uh, he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane for the strength to be able to fulfill that, that day of destiny he had with the cross. It was God's plan, 
But remember what he prayed in Gethsemane, not my will, but yours be done. Mm. So when Jesus talks about, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. The idea of taking up his cross was what Jesus had just explained to his disciples. Mm. He was going to Jerusalem, as we said, that he will suffer many things uh, from the elders, the chief priests and scribes, be killed, read crucified, and rise the third day. So when Jesus talks about take up your cross, what Jesus was saying is, if you want to follow me, you've got to live a life like I live. You know, in other words, you deny your takes on life, your mm. priorities of life, you as the center of your life. You're living for Jesus now. You're going to take up your cross. That is, you're not going to look at life as an opportunity to experience creature comforts, an opportunity to promote yourself, and an opportunity to get what you want out of life. You're going to take your cross, just as Jesus did, even if it's an unpleasant destination, and fulfill not just what you were saved from, right, uh, sin and death, but saved for. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Yeah. Each and every believer needs to have that passionate desire to fulfill that destiny yeah. that God has given to us. And I love this, and follow me. What does that mean? Well, to follow a rabbi at that time was not just to become familiar with his teachings. The idea of following a rabbi was to be so close to that rabbi that his character would rub off on you, that mm. you would become like that rabbi, that, that, that you would uh, learn to talk and, and relate like that rabbi. Uh, you know, we, we see this sometimes even in Christian circles. Uh, when I was at Calvary Costa Mesa, there were all kinds of people that could do great imitations of Pastor Chuck because mm. they were so familiar with his teaching and all, you know. Uh, that's uh, just great and, and all. You know, and, and, you know, when people would do that, they were doing it in a mocking way. They were doing it in a way of uh, saying, you know, this man has so impacted my life. Uh, you know, I can always admit that was what it meant to follow a rabbi. And that's what Jesus means mm. when he says to follow him. Not just to, you know, believe certain creedal statements about him. Not just to identify them. Well, I'm a Christian. I guess I'm checking that box on you know, my, my government forms, mm -hmm. but to have a passionate desire to know him in such a way that his character becomes our character. His way of doing things becomes our way of doing things. Mm -hmm. The way he would speak and relate to people becomes our way of speaking and relating to people. And that is accomplished in our lives, not by, you know, human effort like following a rabbi, but through the power of the Holy Spirit. We all with unveiled face, Paul wrote, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by God the Spirit. Hmm. Does that mean that believer's baptism then becomes sort of a parallel analogy in that when Paul describes it, he talks about the old man dying? And is, that, is there a similar parallel to that of taking up our cross when someone comes to faith? It's not just like, yes, I have, I, I check off, I agree that Jesus is the Messiah and so on, but literally to, to bear your cross is to die to yourself yeah. and your own will. Jesus being Lord is means will bearer, so I no longer live by my will, I live by his will, and that baptism is symbolic of me putting that my will to yeah. death. Yeah, dying to the old life. Mm -hmm. being raised the new one it, it is a beautiful picture of that mm -hmm. and you know when someone is you know people always ask the question you know what is what's is a genuine conversion all about 
Um, well, you know, I, I try not to be a, a fruit inspector. Uh, C.S. Lewis warned about uh, people making the mistake of looking at Christians and saying, why should I become a Christian? This guy I know is a Christian. He's the biggest crank I know. Uh, well, mm-hmm. C.S. Lewis, be careful with that because you don't know how much bigger a crank this guy would be if Jesus wasn't working on him. Yeah. We all start at different places. But when we talk about the idea of, of following Jesus and what real conversion is all about, there's going to be uh, a, a passionate desire, not just to receive God's love, to love Jesus and to want to live in such a way that pleases him, not in order to be saved, but because we're saved, because we've entered into that relationship with him. It, you know, it kind of comes down to what he says here, and we see it in this light. Uh, you know, when he says, if you desire to come after me, you have this desire, you have this passion. Well, where does this desire come from? Mm-hmm. It has to come from God, because without the Lord making us spiritually alive, we're dead in our trespasses and sins. So we, we can't <clears throat> please God if we're in the flesh. Mm-hmm. If we desire to come after him, notice what it says, let him deny himself. Well, Adrian, if your experience is anything like mine, denying yourself is a lifelong process. Mm because it's not denying myself something I want to do, it's denying myself as the central organizing principle of my life. It's like that Bill Bright illustration of the spirit-filled life where he has a little throne in a circle and all the issues of life, and when the self is on the throne, Christ is outside the circle, he describes this as the unbeliever, and then there's the believer, and then the carnal life, and the carnal Christian life, as Bill Bright described, is the self is still on the throne, Jesus is in the circle, but the, the person is still wanting to live their right. own will out. <laughs> right, exactly. You know, but uh, the interesting thing is we, we desire to come after him, we come after him, we deny mm. ourselves, then we take up our cross. Mm. We, we start asking ourselves a question, okay, God, what are you up to? I want to be a part of it today. Yeah. It's that simple. You know, it's not like saying, okay, if God is going to reveal to me this, this tremendous revelation about who I am and, and uh, what I'm supposed mm. to be and I'm going to get this vision. No, it, it's a daily thing. It's yeah. just saying, Lord, use me, you know, love all, through all me, said I live through daily. me, you yeah. know, speak through me, change me, transform mm. me, you know, make me a blessing to other people, you know, take up his cross and follow me, you know, what's a good day, what's a successful day, you know, the old uh, idea of the intentional life, if you aim at nothing, you'll always hit it, mm-hmm. what, what should be our intention? To follow Jesus, mm-hmm. you know, to, you know, like the old uh, song, uh, Day by Day, you know, uh, you know, to see thee more clearly, love thee more dearly, follow thee mm. more nearly day mm. by day. Uh, I think if we make that our focus, we're going to be just fine. Mm. So, you know, again, I know that's probably a lot of information, Mike, but uh, really important for us to see and understand mm. that statement that Jesus made in context, because oftentimes it's ripped out of context, and the idea of uh, take up your cross and follow me is uh, sort of an invitation to become uh, a really obnoxious kind of legalist and Fuddy-duddy. be filled with <laughs> spiritual pride. So. I remember <clears throat> my real first experience of that. Obviously, when you first become a believer, the, the very external, very apparent things uh, you kind of do away with pretty quickly. But I, I remember the first time I went to South Asia, and when I got back, I thought, I'm never doing that ever again. It was miserable. I was, I hate anti-insect insect repellent and <laughs> they invented the, the gnarly food. insects in south asia i think yeah i got seven vaccinations and it was just i just said i'm never doing that again but the more i began to see that god wanted to have me 
that was my service. That was what God was calling me to do, was to minister in more unreached places, out of the spotlight and in, you know, no-name villages and so on. Um, I ended up going back, uh, you know, 11 more times, as well as, you know, a lot of other places where uh, you're not on a spotlight or on a beautiful stage or in the back of a military truck using power off the power grid right off the power <laughs> yeah, lines yeah. and rain with 50 villagers. And yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <clears throat> well, we just got some good, uh, interesting questions from The Rock. Um, not The Rock, but uh, someone named The Rock on YouTube. Uh, what is, what's a parable? Wayne Johnson? I, uh, maybe. We, you never know. You never know. Could be a yeah. rock, one yeah. of the rocks out there. Yeah. Uh, what's what's a parable without truth? Um, sleep dead. Well, I think the question is, um, you know, what's the point of parables? And uh, again, Jesus spoke largely in parables. Uh, you know, he was noted as uh, not teaching anything without using a parable. Well, what is a parable? Well, a, a parable, the, the word in the original language carries the idea of laying two things down next to each other to compare them. It's taking a physical reality that we can understand and using it to illustrate a spiritual reality we have a harder time understanding. Mm. Uh, why did Jesus do that? Well, first of all, uh, it, it, it's a, a great solution to what I would think is one of the greatest communication challenges in the universe, how the true and living God, who's infinite, is gonna communicate his truth to finite minds like ours how God is completely holy and perfect is going to be able to get through all of the uh, static and interference that sin creates within our lives and communicate his truth. Uh, it's, I guess, as J. Vernon McGee would say, putting the cookies on the bottom shelf where the kitties can get at them. So, you know, he taught in parables. And uh, in uh, Matthew 13, we find out why. His disciples said to him, why do you speak to them in parables? He answered and said, because it's been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For whoever has, to him more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away. Therefore I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For assuredly I say to you, many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see, and did not see it and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Two reasons why Jesus taught in parables. Number one, to reveal his truth in a profound and impactful way to those whose hearts were open to the Holy Spirit leading them into truth, but also to conceal his truth from those who had rejected his truth. And in essence, uh, they're uh, looking at Jesus with all the deep, uh, understanding of trying to explain physics to a cow was uh, an expression of the fact that their hearts weren't open to the Lord. And, you know, again, the scripture bears this out. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 14, we are told the natural man doesn't receive the things of the Spirit of God, for their foolishness unto him, and he cannot receive them, for they are spiritually discerned. In other words, the Holy Spirit came to lead us into all truth, Jesus promised in John 16. Without the Holy Spirit causing the Word of God to come alive, uh, we can read the Bible every day. Uh, we can read great uh, commentaries on it, uh, read uh, the thoughts of, of learned men about it, and we still won't understand it because God is the one who has to reveal that truth to us. So that, that was the purpose of parables. Hmm. 
Thank you. Uh, yeah, if you need a little clarification on there, the rock, uh, really appreciate that. Um, someone made a comment on our Facebook feed about Bible prophecy, and maybe you could give us a little uh, balance. Uh, I, I didn't see a question here, but I, I figured that would be, we could turn it into a question. Um, Rich Rodriguez commented that when you said Chicken Little and the Blood Moon um, are all I hear about concerning Israel from some uh, Calvary Chapel circles. So uh, the Calvary Chapel movement tends to be, for by and large, uh, premillennial, which means that we currently exist before the millennial reign of Christ, that, that, that it's a literal reign, and it hasn't happened yet, and that we tend to be uh, pre-tribulation, that meaning the... Tend to be, yeah. I think if you're going to be a Calvary Chapel, you are. Yeah. Yep. And and so uh, how do we take the, the... How do we protect ourselves from getting reading too much into events in Israel, as you mentioned in the beginning, uh, to not go too far with that, where we're, we're being too uh, uh, loose with, with ev ev events that are taking place right now? Well, yeah, I mean, there's a phenomena, Rich, and it's a great question, uh, called newspaper eschatology, where people will go to the newspaper and say that everything that is happening has some deep prophetic significance. And uh, those who do so, uh, you know, oftentimes will drift into things like plain antichrist, antichrist, who's the antichrist, uh, you know, which you know, is a great illustration of, of the gist of your question, in that one of the things that we have to do if we're going to be aware of the signs of the times, and we need to be aware of the signs of the times, you know, we should be looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. We should have the attitude perhaps today, and part of that looking is being aware of the signs of the times, the things that we should be looking for, the, the way the world is going to be leading up to the return of the Lord. So we don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. But, you know, for instance, people who play Antichrist, Antichrist, I think so-and-so is the Antichrist. Um, well, you can get a lot of hits and a lot of followers and a lot of, uh, you know, traffic by, uh, you know, you can sell a lot of books by, you know, offering these kind of speculations. But those kind of speculations have to be tempered by a couple things. First of all, that passage in Titus chapter 2, where a faithful Christian is looking for Jesus Christ, not the Antichrist. Nowhere do we see any kind of instruction saying, oh, you should always be looking at politicians that are going to be dominating the world because this guy's probably it. Hmm. Um, we should know what the Bible teaches about who the Antichrist is, but it does appear very strongly from Revelation 13 that the world isn't going to know who the Antichrist is until he receives a mortal head wound that is miraculously healed. At that point, the whole world will say who is like the beast and who is able to make war with him. The other thing that we need to understand is this. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, we are told that uh, the Antichrist cannot reveal himself as such until the one who restrains is taken out of the way. Well, that work of the restrainer, the Holy Spirit being the salt and light, if you will, working through the church. Salt was an important preservative, kept things from rotting out. Light, again, dispels darkness. It is only uh, after the church is removed and that salt and light ministry of the Holy Spirit is removed, not that the Holy Spirit isn't going to be ministering during the tribulation period. He's going to be leading uh, countless people to Christ during that time. But uh, when we take a look at that, I realize something, that uh, until we're gone, the Antichrist can't 
reveal himself as such. Uh, that the Antichrist is only going to reveal himself as such and be revealed to be this individual uh, when a couple things happen. First of all, he's going to receive a mortal head wound that is healed. The whole world's going to follow him. I believe in the aftermath of this, he is going to sign a seven-year peace treaty, make a strong covenant with many, uh, that is going to allow the Jews, for instance, to rebuild their temple on its historic site. Uh, he's going to take advantage of that, go into the temple and proclaim himself God to be worshipped. Mm. So, you know, when, when I see somebody, I guess to get to the essence of your question, Rich, when I see somebody, you know, saying, oh, yeah, I think so-and-so is the Antichrist. And, you know, have you noticed that, that Ronald Reagan is Ronald Wilson Reagan? All of his names have six in them, 666. Mm. Uh, Barack Obama, oh, look at him. Everybody think. Oh, I don't think anybody's thinking Joe Biden's the Antichrist. Mm. But, you know, the bottom line, or Donald Trump, some of those, oh, those people think he's like Jesus. He might be the Antichrist. You know, I think that's a lot of sound and fury signifying nothing. Why? Because we have certain scriptural guidelines that keep us from going chicken little on the latest incident in the news. Mm. Does that mean that we don't pay attention to the birth pains? Yeah, we need to. Does that mean that we shouldn't be aware of the times we're in? Absolutely. We should be looking up for our salvation draws near, not spiritually asleep at the switch. Good advice. Very yeah. good. Thank you for that wisdom. And thank you for listening. And Renee, we'll get your question tomorrow on Romans 831. Really appreciate that and tuning in on our website. Thank you for tuning in. We'll be here same place, same time tomorrow. God bless you. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.